0: Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there. I found podcast guests there and even made in-person friends all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I'd like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Carolina Olson O'Toole. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. I'm a Scandinavian American graphic designer. I'm currently living and working in New York City, and I've been here for about eight years. I went to Pratt Institute, got my BFA there in graphic design. I've been working in design ever since. I'm currently at Food Network uh, as a senior product designer. Outside of work, I have a small French bulldog named Bagels I love to walk around town with. And I'm also a musician and a fitness enthusiast. I have my NASM uh, personal training certification, and I'm an Olympic weightlifter. And on the music side of things, uh, I play guitar and I sing, so I have a YouTube channel for that. And I've been trying to make an effort to release some things on Spotify to kind of just do the damn thing and get myself out there.
0: Those are amazing hobbies and things that you do outside of work. And it's interesting that you said that you started work as the sole designer of a company right out of school. I feel personally like that's a little unusual, but maybe you could talk about that. Like, what was that like to do?
1: Yeah, I think in the moment it was very difficult, but I think it set my entire career up for like the perfect trajectory. To rewind a bit, it kind of started when I was in my uh, second semester senior year of college. I was already taking a full stack of classes, and I was working a part-time job, and then my parents were kind of nagging me, like, hey, you need some actual um, design experience, because all my work up to then, I was personal training and working at a gym. So I was like, all right, that kind of makes sense. So I did my usual applying to all the New York um, agencies for internships, and then also sent out a few like cold call emails to companies that I just admired in general, saying, like, "Hey." I design things, do you need an intern? And uh, I sent one to this company called Spoon University. I think the email was literally like, hey, I like food, I like cooking, I also design things, do you need an intern? And my then future boss, Sarah, answered back saying like, well, no, not really, but come to the office and check it out on Friday. And then that semester I actually ended up designing like their social posts and whatnot and come in every Friday for a couple hours and just do like an internship day. Unpaid, no credits, but still learned a ton I left that gig after graduating and took a job in advertising because that was the quote unquote right path to take after getting a design degree. And I very quickly learned that that was not the right path for me. And around the three month mark of that, my previous boss in this internship actually sent an email saying, hey, it's been a while. Do you want to grab coffee? Um, also full disclosure, we're looking for a designer. The very long story short is I basically ended up getting a job in that coffee meeting. <laughs> so... Uh, completely switched gears from advertising world to food media startup world. And that office was, I owe so much of my learning to that. Everyone was like under the age of 25, very scrappy. My boss, Sarah Adler, she now works at the New York Times, but she literally taught herself to code to build the back end of this website. And now, so just a really inspiring, creative, passionate people. And just being in an environment was amazing. And like I mentioned, I was the only designer. So I was doing event design, product design, social design, video graphics, like the whole thing. And they were kind of like, hey, do you know how to like animate this thing in After Effects? I'm like, well, no, but I guess I'll learn. So it was a lot of rapid learning. So I have unconventional methods for a lot of ways, but like I can get the job done. And the other interesting part was, since I was the one designer, um, we did a lot of product work. So it was like me and five or six engineers, and they were my primary contacts. And my boss was a CTO. So my boss was a tech person. So I kind of like to liken it to those stories of like the boy lived in the woods and he was raised by wolves so he's like part boy part wolf so I kind of like to think that I'm a designer raised by engineers so I kind of have an engineer brain in the way that I approach a lot of projects it completely rewired the way I approach and think about things and I'm so unbelievably grateful for that because I don't think I would have encountered that elsewhere or in like an agency setting
0: you said that you just like reached out via an email and ended up with a job yeah and that turned into like the job that you have now, even. I always hear people recommend to more junior people, designers or otherwise, just to like, just reach out and introduce yourself. I-, I believe that too. It sounds like it really worked for you.
1: Completely. Yeah. I think knowing people is, I mean, there's a whole other can of worms of how good or bad that is, but networking is so unbelievably key. I mean, there are even companies where. Um, I've applied and then nothing came of it. And then a year later I meet someone that works at the company and they're like, oh yeah, I'll like put your name in. And then I have an offer like within a week. It just, sometimes your stuff doesn't get to the top of the stack and people always want to hire their friends. So sometimes they don't even get beyond that bubble. So making sure you can tap into that bubble from the get go and just taking the risk is key because at the end of the day, the worst they can say is no.
0: Right. And you were saying that you were doing every type of design work at this company or even creative work at this company. And oftentimes I feel like people get really black and white with this and say like, you're doing too many people's jobs and you should say no to those jobs. But I think maybe what you're implying here is that it was like a very small company. And then as it grew, you got to specialize a little bit more. Is that true?
1: Yes. So I think at first um, we were a small company, but the volume of work kind of exceeded something that would be sustainable long-term. I think there's a bit of a trade-off that people don't always wanna acknowledge in companies is like, okay, I can work really fast and do a lot of things, but the quality of work will not be as good as if I did one thing very slowly. And that's just kind of you have to understand what you're working with and decide to accept or deny that. I think when people kind of talk about this unicorn designer of like, oh, they can do video design and they can code and do the websites themselves, you have to understand that trade-off And I think that a lot of times, I feel like the unicorn designer can exist, but they're not going to exist in their best form. Um, And I found it very helpful to learn a bunch of things, take little bits of knowledge from each discipline. And then now that I've gotten to slow down and scope my work more, I can do work that I'm a lot more proud of, that I feel a lot more confident in, and... I think at the end of the day, if you want to make something really great, like for me, it's product design, you want to have an expert working in that. Um, So the way like our teams operate, we have an entire user research team, we have a section of engineers, we have designers, and even within designers, we have, um, we call them squads that focus on different features within the actual app.
0: So are you focused on the Food Network app?
1: Yeah, so I've been focused on our D2C app, Food Network Kitchen, since its launch um, last year. And we have, um, we actually just won two Webby awards. So I'm very excited about that. So our app goes across platforms. So it's uh, CTV, mobile, uh, voice, specifically Alexa and um, web. I've designed for the mobile and CTV, but my big claim to fame was I actually designed our entire backend that powers the system. We stood that up in four months, which is one of my like biggest design feats to date. And it's basically a suite of editorial tools that powers Food in Our Kitchen. So our editors can go in and do like, in-browser video editing, content editing, scheduling, the whole nine yards. So learning how to build a thing to let people build things is kind of a weird Russian doll nested process that has been really interesting, but also really cool. And I don't think I would have stumbled on it, um, that kind of work and that kind of design elsewhere.
0: And would you say that you have any background in doing that? Or was this all like learning as you go, trial by fire, like doing the user research at work and pulling it off in four months?
1: A little bit of both. So on the actual platform, we call it Sauce, kind of like a joke of Secret Sauce. And it was basically inherited from that company, Spoon University, that Food Network acquired. Um, So our backend was called Secret Sauce and that helped power our company. So it was taking like 10% of that and basically just letting it graduate and flourish into this new big thing Um, because a lot of the foundation was still in place. But with that being said, um, we went from basic article editing to like in-browser video editing and had to splice up and section all these recipes. So it's definitely like a more amplified version of that scaled up. But a lot of it has been learning on the fly. It's been prototyping along with engineers and putting it in front of our editorial team and being like, is this what you need? Let me watch you use it. Just like screen record, um, like getting a Zoom call with me, screen record what you're doing so I can watch your process. So it's a bit of a non-traditional user research process based to like our customer facing things. We'll build a prototype put it in front of user research people but since we're working with people that already know our goals and our internal points that we are measuring it's a bit more on the fly but it's keeping it conversational has also been a big strong point
0: you mentioned zoom call which reminded me that we are currently in a coronavirus pandemic i'm imagining you're working from home now were you working from home before the pandemic
1: A bit of yes and no. We were primarily stationed actually in Chelsea Market uh, in Chelsea, New York. We had a couple floors there. So our design team is relatively small. So we do have a bit of policies like as long as you get your work done, you over communicate, we can be flexible. Uh, We would have work from home Fridays typically, but I would be in the office usually Monday to Thursday. And we actually have we have been blessed with good office hours. So like 10 to 5, 6. But again, as long as you get your work done, that's like priority number one.
0: Can you share a little bit about, like, your process or what your day-to-day looks like as a designer at the Food Network? Because I, I feel like I'm really yeah. curious and a lot of people are going to wonder what that's like.
1: Yeah. I will say that when I worked at Spoon University, it was a lot more, like, flashy and cool because we I literally worked in the test kitchen. So they were constantly making, like, these crazy, like, chocolate-covered pancake, whatever. And they're like, oh, do you want your seventh snack of the day? <laughs> but... <laughs> So at Food Network now, it's typically um, stand up meetings in the mornings. So now that we've kind of done a work from home situation, I walk my dog in the morning out beyond calls from like 10 to 12, stand ups, various things. Um, I try to get like a chunk of three to four hours in the afternoon of just like pure focused design time. I'm really passionate about like, working smarter, not harder in that sense. So like noon to three, typically focusing in on work. Uh, have one more stand up at three for our like uh, the apps design team, and then the last like two or three hours of the day back into focused work. When we have meetings, I'm really passionate about keeping a voice for every section of the product represented. So making sure that it's not just the designers congregating to look at designs. And just fawn over them, then pass them on to engineers. Like throw it over their wall. They're like, all right, good luck. <laughs> I try and make sure that we always have like a product person, an engineer person, so that you can catch any issues early and make sure everyone's on the same page from the get go. And keeping that process collaborative. So during these like deep work chunks of time that I have, every now and again, I'll screen share with an engineer and just walk them through what I have, gut check, make sure things are good because I think it's better to over communicate than under in those circumstances, especially in the Corona times where I can't just like swing by their desk.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what's, what's some advice that you have for someone that's trying to get into product design or just starting out in the product design field?
1: I'd say above all, learn to talk about your work. It's very easy to kind of just scroll through your artboards like, oh yeah, I kind of get it. But learning how to actually pitch it and advocate for your ideas is crucial. And it levels you up like 500 bonus points on the designer scale. <laughs> and then a good habit to get into also that has help, helped me a ton is when you're out in the world interacting with things, digital products posters restaurant menus just keep note of like take a second to like step back and kind of critique it um if it takes you 12 clicks just open a new post on some website how would you change it how would you make it better could you make it five clicks instead of 10 and if you can sprinkle that within your day-to-day life you're kind of doing background noise field research all the time and that's going to make your design process so much stronger Because at the end of the day, design does not exist in a vacuum. With product design specifically, you kind of need to know when to um, reinvent the wheel and when to just let a good pattern be a good pattern. And if over time you can have this little stockpile of really important, universally understood patterns, icons, whatever, you're going to be so much more efficient when it comes to actually implementing that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And maybe if I could build on that for a second, I I also recommend people notice the things they like design-wise that throughout their day as they're noticing stuff too, that that they find to be really successful to, to have that same sort of back pocket ideas.
1: Totally. And to actually, yes, end that one more time. When you're picking up on like what you do and don't like and how you're interacting with these things, I think it's important to remember that design and decoration are two very different things. So if you're doing all your field research on Dribble, you're going to see a lot of like pretty gradients and a lot of new morphism or whatever we're calling it, buttons. Um <laughs> And it might look pretty, but once you actually get that in your hands and you're clicking around, you're going to notice it's not efficient. So understanding that marriage between things you enjoy, things you just like visually, and what's actually working under the scenes.
0: I think that's great. Yeah. I like that you added a yes, And Have you uh, any (laughs) improv experience?
1: I don't, but a lot of people I work with do, so it's in my brain now.
0: I feel I feel like every single person I know uh, in New York City has like at least an improv class under their belt.
1: Oh yeah, it's funny. I think most of the software engineers, that really specifically like do they like play the drums and also do improv. It's just <laughs> <laughs> across the board. They're great though. I love them.
0: Uh, thank you for painting that mental picture for everybody that's yeah. not in New York. <laughs> that's good. What about for more senior people? What do you recommend that they do?
1: I think so. I would quickly add a caveat that I'm senior in the sense that I have a senior design title, but I'm still only four years in the industry. So I'm like pseudo senior in that sense. But something that I found helpful and that I would invite other people to do is have a side project. So, speaking from my own senior perspective, um, I have a set of brand guidelines to follow since I'm in house, meaning that I can explore, but only so much. But making sure that you have like the, um, the outside time to actually get in that sandbox, play, discover new things and kind of just like I'll let yourself unleash a bit. I for myself, actually, at the beginning of this year, uh, specifically 130 days ago now, I always said like, oh, I want to draw more. I never really get to illustrate. I just want to draw more. But I never actually drew more. I just said I wanted to. So I set a goal to have a habit to draw something every day for a year. So, and then for accountability standards, I, um, I made a little instrument account, pixels and squares. And every day I draw and post one thing. And I'm 130 days in now. Wow. And watching it evolve over time has been so much more fascinating than I even expected. At first, I was like, oh, people always tell me it was a side project. Like, I'll just do it. And then now that I'm actually doing it, it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so it actually is helpful. It's not just a fun thing to put in a portfolio. With Instagram specifically, I can, like, see the grid view and just scrolling through the phases of the styles I've gone through. And one of the reasons I haven't really drawn much in the past was that I was insecure about not having a distinct style and not having like an illustrative voice. But now that I can scroll through things I'm like, oh, I can, I can see like the brushstrokes always this way. And I tend to draw these kinds of subjects and watching it evolve over time and then seeing the themes pan out in like 10 to 15 square chunks um, has been fascinating just to watch it unfold.
0: Yeah. And I think there's like a, another lesson in there for junior people that because I, I often hear more junior designers emphasize that they're worried about defining a style and having it. And that's totally you, you exemplified that so well with just like, just make and it will happen and you'll be able to evolve your style that way.
1: Totally. And I think when it comes to style, for the longest time, I tried to pigeonhole it. And like, you can learn a lot about your style about copying people's design, design styles and seeing how it Um, it fits in, but it's really something more that you unpack and not a thing you like decide on one day. So like over time, give it time, it will come and it'll kind of uncover itself.
0: So to change gears a lot, I think at recording of this episode, we're about three weeks from George Floyd getting murdered. We've had what I would call maybe an uprising, a, a revolution. I think that this movement currently is a lot more than just a couple weeks of protests. I am hoping for lasting change. I think that within the design community, we often talk about how many positive things there are. But I I think that it's really important that we all focus on like the white supremacy, the patriarchy, the sexism and racism that exist within the design community itself. We were talking pre-show about this a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts about design and the Black Lives Matter movement and the design community and the systematic bigotry that exists in it.
1: Yeah. So I think from, uh, I'll add the caveat that I am a white person speaking to this. Um, and although this is an issue surrounding, um, black lives and black empowerment, um, this is a white person's job to solve kind of because we, because of systemic racism, we have put this in place. Um, And I think one great way to begin addressing this is on an individual level by self-educating and then also um, rounding that up a bit in our companies, making sure that Black voices are accounted for and um, amplified and included in every conversation. Uh, I believe the statistic is that only 5% of the design community is Black. So we have to figure out how we can change that. One really important way we can begin to advocate for Black Voices in Design is by stopping hiring our friends. I mentioned this beforehand. I got my current job by being hired by people I know. And if you are hiring your friends, even if you say, all right, my group of friends is very racially diverse. You can call into the question of, all right, if you're hiring, you're hiring your friends from college. Well, then you're scoping it to maybe a certain socioeconomic status and you're excluding another portion of the population. So the only way to really break down that barrier fully is to go beyond your circle. It's scary, but it's going to be great. I promise. There's so much opportunity out there and also hiring younger designers and not just pulling from a senior designer pool because there is such a massive issue with um, like with unpaid internships. Even I am, I was financially privileged enough and I'm white. So I'm privileged in that sense to be able to sustain a unpaid internship to get that experience and go into a role. If you are from an underprivileged community, chances are you can't make that decision. You have to go for a paid role. And if you can't get the unpaid internship, you don't get that experience. So there's a disparity between these white designers that are excelling and getting into the the white boys club of advertising and whatnot. And then if you can't afford to do that, you're kind of left at the bottom. And then if companies really don't have any interest in fostering these young designers, being patient for a year or two to let them grow. Um, if they want the fast satisfaction of having a senior designer that can pump out artboards like nobody's business, we're again perpetuating the racism that we have in design. And then on one other note, I'm a product designer, uh, especially product design Twitter, we love to preach empathy day in and day out, but I noticed for myself and I got to do a real big timeline cleanup um, when I noticed who got really quiet about empathy for a couple of weeks. And suddenly, once it wasn't applying to a physical product, empathy wasn't as important. So I think it's important to exercise that empathy in designs and also just as general level human beings.
0: I think that's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate that you emphasize that white supremacy is a white problem, because that's the case. And it's really important for us as white people to be having this conversation and to, to be dismantling it. Totally agree. Maybe I could ask you a question about the food industry and the intersection of the design industry, because I think you're in a unique position to maybe answer that. You mentioned the statistic of 5% of designers are Black people. Another sort of similar statistic I've heard is around the like percentage of design school graduates in the United States that are women versus the percentage of women that are in the design industry and the disparity there anecdotally I've also heard that the food industry can be like that where there are more women that are unfortunately because of the patriarchy pushed into cooking but when it becomes a high-paid top chef professional industry it's dominated by white men what is it like to be in the food industry and at the intersection of those two things as a woman
1: yeah it's been very interesting for sure I Have had the absolute pleasure of working with people who are typically very progressive-minded and open-minded and understanding. So all conversation, especially surrounding Black Lives Matter, surrounding even coronavirus, how stressful that's been. I work with people that have been very loud, loud in a productive, meaningful way, um, making sure these issues are addressed and spoken about and considered day in and day out. Um, And also my immediate design team Actually, I think the white cis man is the minority on our team, which is really fantastic and interesting, which means also that these conversations that are happening within people on my org chart level, we've had these conversations that are not always fun, but we're open to learning. um, And we've been very aggressive about that. But as a, um, a woman in food, I think I have from the design perspective, like I mentioned, I work in advertising for a hot minute before food. I actually think it was a bit worse than while I learned a lot at my time, uh, in advertising, it was very much like a boys club mentality. Um, I remember my very first project was this icon set that I spent so much time on and, um, I was allowed into the meeting to have here talked about with the client and the senior designer took credit for all of my work off the bat white guy and i was in a position where i didn't feel comfortable enough speaking up or advocating for myself because it was like my first time on the job i didn't really know what was happening and i kind of just let that sit and that's a very common experience from what i've heard from other female designers uh now that i'm in food world i feel like one issue that i have with um the food world in general is that i very often feel like women chefs are kind of seen as these like lifestyle homemakers and then male chefs are kind of these like Super, like, awesome culinary explorers, or something like that. But from my own personal experience at Food Network and in the industry, I have not been affected by it as much as I had anticipated, personally.
0: I think we can hear your dog uh, drinking water. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's adorable. But just for the listeners to know what that sound (laughs) is,
1: she's very adorable. She's a Frenchie named Bagels. Bagels, yes.
0: I'm glad you brought up the advertising industry again, because one of the things you said earlier was, I think you used air quotes about the like path that you were supposed to quote unquote take after design school. I don't know that I agree with that or necessarily had that message when I, I didn't go to design school per se. I went to art school and took a design class, but I'm curious if you feel like that was drilled in at school for you and how, how you think that people in school now should actually hear that message?
1: Yeah, so uh, for context, I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn uh, and I graduated in 2016. I think it was always presented as like the correct path because first off, these agencies in New York are held on such a high pedestal. Um, So not necessarily advertising, but like design agencies in general. And non-traditional paths were not really spoken about. You would have one or two like illustrators or sculptors kind of go rogue and do a freelance route. And that was kind of like the, the really brave thing, but you kind of imagine like, Oh, like they're not going to make any money. There's going to be no success in that. Ironically, some people I went to school with have taken the freelance route are making amazing work for massive brands. So like watching them do that has been really inspiring, but I think it was a lot of like the New York culture of like this advertising design machine really that was spoken about so much
0: who is one person that our listeners should know about?
1: This is a great way to piggyback off what I was just saying about freelancing. Um, one person I think everyone should know about, especially people just starting out is, uh, Chris Doe. He has a YouTube channel, the future, um, which is absolutely incredible. It's all about the business design. And he has a lot of conversations with really profound and creative thought leaders in the design world. Um, I discovered him just after I graduated where I was dabbling in the idea of freelancing and it really helped give me the tools to understand why I personally didn't want to do that. And I think learning why you don't want to do something is just as important as learning why you do want to do something, um, which is also another reason I advocate for making internships paid because that's how you learn what you do and don't want to do. But it's a fantastic channel where you can, hear people talk about what it's actually like to work in design and how to actually navigate the really sticky questions. Like how do you price your work? It's the thing that nobody wants to talk about, but is literally critical and everything that follows those decisions. But Christo, if you're new or you're like an older designer, check it out because, um, I found a lot of nuggets of gold in that.
0: What about reading? What book, what book should we all read?
1: I'm going to cheat a bit and give you three answers. (laughs) I love it. So, um, I think these three books have been really integral to how, I, um, how I've how i shaped my work. Um, they're not all necessarily design scoped, but they help inform my design process. So one would be Atomic Habits by James Clear. And this is definitely a popular book, um, but it's about the importance of building small habits to kind of achieve your larger goals. I've put it in process with this Drawing Everyday project, and I've already seen the results. So I would really recommend it second to that is deep work by cal newport again work smarter not harder and it's it really helps me do those three to four hour pockets of deep work and really focus on what i'm designing for that day and last but not least show your work and steal like an artist by austin cleon i think i own three copies of each of these books and i have them stationed in my little design zones um I feel like every time I'm at a standstill, I flip through a few of these pages and I'm immediately inspired. I don't know how many listeners know about Chelsea Market and how it's kind of set up, but our Food Network offices were right above a bookstore in the lower half of it. So for the longest time on my break, if I needed some inspiration, I would just go down and flip through the book there. And after a while, I just bought a couple and I was like, you know what, I'm coming down to this bookstore enough to just own it.
0: (laughs) I love that. And what a cool uh, place to have underneath your office.
1: Oh, yeah, it's the best. I always walk out of there with like a couple extra enamel pins and a book or two.
0: (laughs) So I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So what we do is we share the profits from our swag sales and our advertisers with all of our guests of the show. Are there other ways that listeners can support you?
1: You can check out my website at carolinaotool.com if you want to hire me for something. But with that being said, I have been incredibly fortunate to have been able to keep my job and my salary throughout the Corona times. So um, I'd like to encourage everyone to check out the Black Artists and Designers Guild and Girls Who Code. Um, if you have the resources, I think these are two unbelievably important organizations that could really use your financial support in these times. Black Artists and Designers Guild, as you can probably guess, help foster growth for Black artists and designers. And they have really great talks and events for um, people. And then Girls Who Code really helps women in code learn and pursue that career trajectory. I've had the pleasure to primarily be female software engineers throughout my entire career so far. So I can see firsthand how important programs like these are to help them learn and grow in a male-dominated space.
0: Those are fantastic organizations, and I will put links to them in the show notes for people to click on. And please, if you can, support. Where are the best places for people to find you? I feel like I know you from Twitter. I've learned recently about your amazing YouTube channel. And you mentioned Spotify, I think, in the in the intro of the show, maybe pre-show, if that got left out. Uh, where, where do you like to send people to learn more about you?
1: So I'd say Twitter is probably the best way to find me. Um, my handle is just5foot2. I am, in fact, just5foot2. And then on Instagram, um, I'm also just5foot2 there for photography. And I have a main handle, which is just Carolina O'Toole for my name. If you search my name on YouTube or Spotify, you will get my music. So proceed with caution. I don't think it's too terrible. I hope you enjoy. And then I also have one more Instagram account. Like I mentioned, my drawing project, and that is Pixels in Squares.
0: Carolina, it's been amazing having you on Bezier. Thank you so much. I thought your answers were really thoughtful. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up?
1: I think it's about it for me. Thanks for having me on, Zach.
0: Bézier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at the big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bézier, please email us at inquiry at That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.